0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Put Away Your False Gods. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, November the 6th, 2011. Last month on public television, I watched a few minutes of a history of the Aztec Empire. I happened to see the part that described in graphic detail the Aztec practice of human sacrifice. In 1487, for example, the Aztecs sacrificed thousands of people in four days at the consecration of the Great Pyramid of Tenochtitlan. I couldn't watch, so I turned off the television and went to bed. The the religious legitimation of violence, like human sacrifice, makes it very hard to say that all religions are equally valid paths to God, or that they all teach the same thing. Genocide, widow burning, caste systems, female genital mutilation, witch hunts, ritual abuse, ethnic cleansing, suicide bombers, and apartheid, All these evils and more have claimed religious sanction. They they suggest that there are true and false gods, good and evil religious practices, angels of light and demons of darkness, and that it's up to us to choose between the two. No one should feel morally smug Religious violence plays no favorites, either with the perpetrators or the victims. In his book, Terror in the Mind of God, Mark Juergensmeyer includes separate chapters on violence by Christians, Jews, Muslims, Sikhs, and Buddhists. The book by Charles Kimball, When Religion Becomes Evil, also covers similar ground. And we should note the atheistic religions deserve special mention. The Soviet and Maurits liberations, quote-unquote, slaughtered a hundred million people. Only the modern state can unleash industrial-scale violence, like Auschwitz, Hiroshima, Rwanda, or Darfur. Nationalism, perhaps, is our most violent god. In his study of mass murder called Worse Than War, Daniel Goldhagen estimates that in the last century alone, between 127 and 175 million people have been eliminated. They came from all regions of the world and from all social, economic, and political groups. The vast majority of these victims were killed in their own countries by their fellow citizens, by willing and non-coerced murderers, and almost never with any substantial dissent. The myths, lies, denials, excuses, rationalizations, self-exculpations in what Goldhagen calls prettified self-images in linguistic camouflage of both the active perpetrators and passive bystanders are legion. Although states alone have the power to eliminate a group, and political leaders bear unique responsibility, Goldhagen locates the problem in human agency. eliminationism is not inevitable, accidental, a spontaneous eruption, or the work of abstract forces or structures. Religious violence doesn't happen by chance. It's a choice. And that's the message in the ancient text of Joshua. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Joshua twenty four fifteen. Put away the false gods of your ancestors. Forsake the pagan gods of the surrounding peoples. Worship the true and living God. Why? Because of, as we read in Joshua chapter 3, he's no petty tribal chieftain. Rather, he alone is Lord of all the earth. He is God of all peoples of the earth. The bloody book of Joshua, which in some ways exemplifies texts of terror, begins with the death of Moses and the ascension of Joshua, his aide-de-camp. The first half of the book is a triumphalistic history of military conquests. The second half of the book details the division of the conquered lands among the twelve tribes of Israel. The book then ends with Joshua's death, in a plea for political sanity, Joshua 24:14 and 15, Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. But Joshua's plea fell on deaf ears. The people made enthusiastic pledges of fidelity. But Joshua was dubious. Moses had led Israel in Exodus out of Egyptian bondage, whereas under Joshua, the oppressed became the new oppressors. His genocidal campaigns left no survivors. He totally destroyed all who breathed. Cities were burned. Vanquished kings were publicly hanged. Wealth was plundered. Peoples were enslaved. We read in Joshua 11, verse 20, Extermination without mercy was the stated goal. Divine approval was the putative rationale. The religious legitimation of violence came at a steep price. Instead of political sanity, the reign of Joshua was followed by madness and mayhem, the period of the judges. In a single generation after the death of Joshua, Israel descended into 400 years of anarchy, where, in the words of the very last sentence of the book, every person did what was right in his own eyes. <clears throat> Israel's genocides had unleashed the dark forces of self-destruction. In its religious life, the word of the Lord was rare. Idolatry was rampant. Debauchery characterized civic morality. Judges chapter 19, for example, records the murder of a nameless woman who was gang-raped all night and then dismembered, a crime so heinous that it subsequently provoked a civil war. Think about it, exclaims the exasperated narrator. Consider it. Tell us what to do. Judges 19.30. On the economic front, there were famines. It would be many long centuries before King David united the country. Then, long after David, the 8th century prophets rose up and flipped this relationship between violence and religion. The supplementary reading this week from Amos chapter 5, 18-24 is only one example. Instead of legitimizing evil, True religion protests any and every form of dehumanization. Religious ritual without human justice, says Amos, is a recipe for divine judgment. I hate, I despise your religious feasts. Away with the noise of your songs. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream. About the same time that I saw the show about Aztec human sacrifice, I also watched a documentary film called Pray the Devil Back to to Hell from the year 2008. It tells the story of Muslim and Christian women who joined together in a peace movement to end 14 years of civil war in the tiny West African country of Liberia. From 1989 to 2003, Liberians endured starvation, systematic rape, torture, mutilation, and Charles Taylor's cocaine-crazed soldiers. A third of the country was displaced. Up to 10% perished. But instead of leaving history to chance, the women made a choice. No more war. No more legitimations of violence in the name of God, country, political liberation, or economic reform. Under the brave leadership of Lema Roberta Gaboey, the women rose up and organized. They prayed and sang by the thousands in the fish market every day in their trademark white t-shirts, in the sweltering sun, and then in the torrential rains. They announced so-called sex strikes to all the men until the violence ceased. They picketed the American Embassy. Their persistence forced Charles Taylor to acknowledge them in a public ceremony. As the President fidgeted in his chair on stage, Gaboey spoke for the nation. We are tired of war, tired of running, tired of begging for wheat, tired of our daughters being raped. They compelled Taylor and the rebel factions to the peace table in Ghana. When talks stalled after six weeks, they staged a sit-in and prohibited the delegates from leaving the hall until they signed an agreement. And after the peace accords in 2003, they led the nation in disarmament, then in voter registration and campaigning, all of which led to the election of Ellen Johnson Sirleaf as president of Liberia and the first African head of state in January 2006. For books this week, I review Peter Godwin. The title, The Fear, Robert Mugabe and the Martyrdom of Zimbabwe. New York, Little, Brown, and Company, 2010, 371 pages. Peter Godwin has reported from 60 countries as a foreign correspondent. But in this book, he returns to his childhood home of Zimbabwe, where his father was an engineer and his mother was a physician for 40 years. That was way back in the complicated days when Zimbabwe was the British colony of southern Rhodesia. After protracted wars, in 1980, the African nation won its independence, and Robert Mugabe, born in 1924, was elected president. He is still president today, the world's oldest leader. Zimbabwe once enjoyed one of the highest standards of living in Africa, including a literacy rate of 92%. But under Mugabe's 30-year reign of terror, the country has redefined state dysfunction. Unemployment is 94 percent. Life expectancy has plummeted from 60 to 36. One-third of the population has fled the country. Schools and hospitals have little water, electricity, books, or medicine. Hyperinflation has made their currency worthless. In one example, the monthly electricity bill for one of Godwin's friends was $865 trillion Zimbabwean dollars. The country even has a $1 trillion note, the world's largest. But that's not even the worst part. Godwin's book is a startling expose of Mugabe's torture state especially as that was unleashed during the presidential and parliamentary elections of 2008. Election results were withheld for weeks, then it was declared that the opposition leader, Morgan Svangirai, had not won enough votes to avoid a runoff. Svangirai refused to participate in that runoff, Mugabe won, and eventually the party signed a a power-sharing agreement in which Mugabe remained president and Svigangarai became prime minister. Whether the arrangement was a necessary compromise, the best that the movement for democratic change could get, or whether it's a continuation of Mugabe's dysfunctional autocracy is debatable. What is not debatable is the industrial-scale torture, intimidation, and violence that Mugabe unleashed against his political opposition. Godwin's documentation includes first-hand narratives from all the players, including Mugabe's personal chaplain, the American ambassador, bishops, political leaders, artists, and, most important of all, the ordinary people who tell their torture stories. These eyewitness accounts make for traumatic reading. At first, Godwin found the phrase pretentious, but in the end, he writes, I am bearing witness to what is happening here, to the sustained cruelty of it all. I have a responsibility to try to amplify this suffering, this sacrifice, so that it will not have happened in vain. Despite the darkness, what ultimately shines through is the bravery, dignity, resilience, and perseverance of a long-suffering people who love their country and who still work for meaningful change. The author is Peter Godwin. The title, The Fear, Robert Mugabe and the Martyrdom of Zimbabwe. For film this week, I review Moneyball from the year 2011. At the end of the 2001 baseball season, the Oakland Athletics lost the division title, and they also lost three marquee players to free agency. They couldn't replace those players that demanded the stratospheric salaries. That season, for example, their team payroll was $40 million, compared to the $125 million of the New York Yankees. It turned out to be a blessing in disguise, and changed the way that all teams evaluate players and do business. The A's manager, Billy Bean, played by Brad Pitt, hired a young quant straight out of Harvard who sliced and diced complex statistics, so-called sabermetrics, to identify undervalued players. Amidst much internal dissension, they rebuilt the team. Two years later, the Boston Red Sox won their first World Series since 1918 using this same financial model, even though Billy Bean had turned down their offer to make him the highest paid manager in sports. This film dramatizes the 2003 best-selling book of the same title by Michael Lewis. I would say it's a slam dunk for sports fans, but should also enjoy wider appeal. Moneyball from the year 2011. And for poetry this week, in the beauty of the autumn season, we've posted a poem by the English poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. Hopkins lived from 1844 to 1889. The title of the poem is God's grandeur The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod. and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil. And wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, Oh, morning, at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. Gerard Manley Hopkins, God's Grandeur. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 6, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.